Hello, time to Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. I'm not going to redo that because this is already our second take <laughs> because my microphone wasn't working. Or Andy said I sounded too loud. And uh, yeah, so we're just going to go with this one. <laughs> it is uh, the 27th of July. We're sorry for being a day late. Um, I don't even know if we're going to be a day late. We might get this out later today, but usually on Tuesday mornings, you wake up and you have this in your inbox box today. You don't. We're all over the country right now. Uh, Tammy, where are you right now? I'm in Pasadena near Los Angeles. Lovely Pasadena. Yeah. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> it's very suburban. There are coyotes. Oh, really? Yeah. Are you in, are you in? West Pasadena? What, what's the one? South Pasadena? South Pasadena is the one that like everyone goes to for schools or something, right? Oh, really? South Pass? I'm west. I'm west of there. But okay. I don't really know. There's a lot of fancy houses. It's there. a yeah, super Pasadena. Taiwanese city, I think, right? Pasadena. My well, Taiwanese friend lives down this street. Yeah, okay. I don't know if that's any indication. <laughs> yeah, well. Yeah, Pasadena. Um, I have no... I have nothing to say about Pasadena. Not good or bad. You know, it seems fine. I lived in Eagle Rock, which is next to Pasadena. Oh, yeah, and sometimes like we would Rock. go to, uh, but you know, I don't know. Eagle Rock was like fine. Um, I guess it's, <laughs> I mean, it was different when I lived there. Definitely. It's not like I'm saying, oh, when I was there, it was all just Pinoy's and we went to Seafood City and Jolly Beef. <laughs> not true. You know, it had already already started, <laughs> but apparently it's worse now. Or at least I looked and the housing prices are way up from it's when crazy, we yeah. lived there. Um, anyway, exciting stuff. Uh, so the, <laughs> we had a meetup. That's how I know that Tammy is driving all, all around the country in a, uh, you know, in a converted SUV. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, it looks cool. I saw some photos. Um, but, uh, we had a meetup in the Bay area. I met Andy for the first time. Ooh. Um, and, uh, you Tammy like and I other? have met before. <laughs> yeah. 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 Good vibes. <laughs> Solid vibes. And, uh, yeah, thrown out. <laughs> um, we had a burrito. <laughs> had a burrito. Oh, wow. I got sick from the burrito. Um, oh, I was like really that. sick. I was trying not to because oh, I felt God. bad because Andy was, I had just met Andy. And I was like, that burrito really fucked up my stomach. I was like, usually I'm okay, you know, but that one, I don't know. They must have put something in it, but oh, uh, I had no idea you were sick. That I didn't feel very good. Um, but we had a meetup with some of you from the Bay Area. Yeah. Um, and Thanks some everybody. of you we had met for the second time. And uh, that was great. So it was great to meet all of you as always. And if you want to join our meetups, then you should join our Discord. These are all people that we've been talking to for months and months and months. And so it's always good to put a face to a screen name. Um, <laughs> and if you sign up for a Discord, you can do that. Now, um, we have a very full show today. And we have a very limited amount of time to do it. So this is going to be kind of like a speed round type of thing, um, which is good because I spent three minutes talking about nothing. Um, the first thing is the Olympics. Have you guys been watching the Olympics at all? Only a little. The time change th is actually making it hard to... Uh, oh, the time difference is making it hard because I want to watch live sports, right? And like right. eight o'clock on the East Coast is, or six o'clock on the East Coast is middle of the night in Japan. <laughs> But uh, yeah. I guess I wake up to some stuff, but at that point, I don't want to watch TV. Yeah. What about you, Tammy? Have you been watching? I haven't been watching. I feel like I've been reading about it. So I've got some of the highlights, but I've just seen clips online. Have you not been watching out of like moral uh, 
certitude or whatever moral <laughs> moral reasons yeah. or are you or is it just because you have not installed a television in your <laughs> in, in your satellite. conversion SUV I know, I, yet? Exactly. I wish it were principled, right? <laughs> like, yeah, like a satellite dish on top of like the car. Like FBIMC in Japan. But right. no, really, I have no idea how to watch the Olympics. <laughs> yeah, be like, listen, I need to install some new wiring in my uh, conversion SUV <laughs> and then I'll watch it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's been an interesting Olympic Games because uh, – uh, Andy, I agree with you. It's a little hard to watch. I never know when things are on. I think that like Google and NBC are kind of obscuring it on purpose. I don't think Google is, but you know, I think NBC is making it hard to figure out so that people don't know what's live and they don't know what's fake, right? Uh, Which actually makes it very hard to gamble on the Olympics because I never know what's actually <laughs> And so uh, in some good news, I have not been gambling on the Olympics because it's too complicated to try and figure out. There's And also like, you know, whatever, like I don't actually know Right. who is going to win um, <laughs> any of these events. But uh, there are kind of, it is interesting because, um, you know, like Naomi Osaka, who lit the lit torch. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And clearly is like who Japan wants to represent uh, as their athletes going forward. Right. Like mm -hmm. I don't, I mean, Otani is playing back baseball now, so maybe it would have been him, but I actually don't think so. I think it would have been Naomi Osaka, even if Otani was in Japan, like maybe Otani would have been like, the person who handed the torch to Naomi Osaka, but Naomi Osaka is sort of who they want to represent themselves as. She lost last night, yeah. you know? Um, Pretty badly, and, too. And then today, Simone Biles, right. uh, you know, this is part of the problem with having this stuff at a different time is that it, I woke up at like 6 a.m. and the first thing I saw was like a uh, tweet saying, oh no, Simone Biles has like withdrawn. And it seems like the reason I she see. withdrew isn't because she got injured, but she cited mental health and pressure. And um, in hindsight, a lot of this has been coming. You could see this coming because, you know, even at the trials, she wasn't great, you know, but um, and then she talked a lot about the toll that it was taking on her mentally. Um, yeah. She seemed unhappy in the first time that she appeared in that. Like, I, I don't want to like read body language, but, you know, she, you could the, the announcers making a big deal out of like you could see her mouthing stuff like, you know, this is hard. That was hard, hmm. you know, and um, sort of countered to her. Uh, you know, I don't think it's countered her personality because I think her personality actually is like sort of like I do the hardest stuff and it's hard and I and I nail it because I'm awesome, which, you know, <laughs> I think that's why people like her, you know, or why people gravitate towards her. But uh, I don't know. It, it's if she's now out for the individual gymnastics, which I don't know if she is or if she isn't, you know, it, it it's kind of like a catastrophic Olympics for the so U.S., far. right? For the right. US, yeah. yeah. Well, no, Naomi Osaka is not American. Oh, you know, true. so yeah. Naomi Osaka yeah, is like is Japanese, right? So um those are like the two biggest stars, I think, in this yeah, Olympics. The star, yeah. Like, yeah. You think of the entire Olympics was the two biggest? Oh, for sure. Yeah. 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 Who else? I mean, nobody cares about the basketball, yeah. really, you know. Um, in its own world of the US, that's another crisis for the US. Uh if they're meant right, to basketball. the US keeps <laughs> keeps losing. <laughs> Yeah. I feel like the fact that the basketball keeps losing is actually more entertaining. Yeah, it's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I root against. I, I will say that you know, please don't. You know, uh, <laughs> you're rooting against. I root them. against them. Yeah, <laughs> because I think it's funny when they lose. Yeah, you know, like it's not. It's just kind I don't. Of I don't. I don't want the players to like suffer. You know, but 
I also just think it's funny yeah. when they lose to like France and Nigeria and um, yeah. <laughs> they're getting kind of run out of the gym. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the the part that I want to talk about or that, that we should talk about is that there have been protests outside of these Olympics the entire time, right? Um, like, do you have a sense of what these protests are about? Tammy, I mean, you were I... you shared a couple articles with us. Yeah, I mean, I guess the stuff that I've seen is based, I mean, first of all, it's striking because you know, I think we've discussed before, and, and um, Andy gets into this a little bit in his episode with Chelsea, but Japanese civil society, it's kind of protest culture is not that vibrant. And so, you know, it's I think it's Korea. really, it's not Korea, you know, it, and so I think it's significant that these protests have been quite hardy, like hundreds of people, maybe thousands coming out like on a regular basis. And it seems to me that the messaging is twofold. Like one, I mean, first of all, it's obviously just cancel the Olympics. This is not fair. But one of it is one thing is COVID. You know, the COVID rates are now hitting record levels and people are short on hospital beds. And then two, just I think a question of like, who, what, what is this for? Who is this for? So it, you know, it's targeting both Japan itself and the structure of the IOC that basically strips sovereignty from nation states. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that like I saw a lot of uh, signs and what, uh, you know, a lot of them did have to do with the coronavirus. And the central question was basically like, we are not a particularly vaccinated country yeah. right now. Um, everything is shut down. You know, I, I have some friends who uh, are there, you know, as part of the press, and mm-hmm. they said that they can't leave, right? Like they, the village, they just get yeah. shuttled to events. Yeah. Uh, they mostly eat at 7-Eleven. Um, Oh, wow. Which, you know, apparently is good. The bento boxes. (laughs) Isn't that David Chang's whole thing is that basically he was inspired by 7-Elevens in Japan, right? Like that was sort of Asian 7-Elevens are are pretty delicious. I've never been to Japan except the airport. Um, And uh, so I don't know what the 7-Elevens You have convenience stores in Korea, right? They're pretty. Family Mart. Yeah, Family Mart. It's kind of based on, yeah. yeah, It's like fresh. It's the same day, like with the fresh. Fresh daily. Push it up. Yeah. Tomorrow. Oh, so it's like Sunrise Market. Like, yeah. Do you remember that spot in Soho? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, Sunrise Market. Yeah, yeah, it's like that. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, it's good. I've made the connection in my brain. <laughs> <laughs> that wouldn't be that bad. But it also seems like a tragedy to be a Japan and only, be, yeah. you know, to not know. be able to do these things. So I don't know. My sense is that basically I think everyone is probably pretty miserable, Yeah, you know? Um, and. You know, I don't think they're miserable because of the protesters, but I just think everybody in general there is miserable. So that does bring up the question, like, why are they doing this? Like, who is this for? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the answer is just like, well, there's so much money involved that we have to do it, you yeah. know, even if it's this sort of farce. Um, and uh, yeah. yeah, I don't know. Have you have you enjoyed any of the events? Um, I Let's see. What was I watching? I watched some water polo. That was kind of interesting. Uh, that was I hate water polo. The I mean all all these I watched some three on three basketball that was weird. I don't know. There's all these there's sports like handball, you know, netball. Like they're all they're all kind of like modeled on like soccer or basketball principles, but yeah, it's kind of just playing the same sport over and over. It kind of made me curious about like what is the history of these sports? Do they all kind of? I think the history of these sports is that at some point there's a people who are good athletes and they play soccer, and then they're like a B tier of athletes and they, and play, they play handball. Everything else. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they play everything else, and then there's like a D tier of athlete and they do like, you know, yeah, I don't know, like 
every other event like canoe slalom and stuff like that if they're rich enough right (laughs) i I do think what's kind of interesting is you know just channel surfing you get this coverage of u.s athletes u.s broadcasters talking about the u.s teams in a very you know nationalistic way and that's how you know i i I consumed the olympics in the 90s and i guess into the 2000s but now that seems so um quaint you know because if you're on twitter all the time you just see journalists from all around the world talking about the Olympics from all their different national angles and they have much more updated information and they have all these like, you know, uh, backstories and like uh, sort of uh, not like fancy fluff pieces, but like real stories. And like, so like the, the I, think, they? I think the, well, you know, <laughs> I just thought every nation had its own chauvinistic take. No. Yeah. Olympics they're all itself. chauvin. Well, but just, just by being um, just, that's just that very fact that makes American coverage seem quaint. Right. It's like, when we were a kid, this like dominated our conception of the Olympics, right? Like Carrie Strug and the U.S. Olympic team in '96, right? That was like the only story. Or Michael Johnson, and now it just seems like, well, it's training for the United States. We, I, it's become very clear that the United States is just one country among many all these other countries. And you know, you could, you know, have an Asian news timeline. I just see all the news about Asian athletes all the yeah. time on my Twitter. Um, I don't see that. I see the Korean news with like archery and stuff, you know. I did see that. They're always yeah. like massively covering the sports they're good at, yeah. obviously. So. They're like I know. Indian, uh, what's the rifle sport? They're, like they're good yeah. at rifle shooting. So I see like coverage of that stuff, you know. It is um, good to get that perspective. Yeah. I don't know if it's good. It just makes the United States coverage seem kind of quaint and outdated. And I don't know if uh, the sort of Bob Costas version of the Olympics in my mind is kind of like, does it, it's just kind of anachronistic at, at this point. Koreans are just very good at practicing. That's Period. My, All yeah. things. It's like a borderline eugenics take, but <laughs> I thought is. about why Koreans are good at archery and golf. Golf, yeah. And breakdancing. And my theory is just that like, there's something about culturally in Korea that allows people to endure a lot of abuse and practice a lot. You know, That's basically the culture of Korea. So right? if we see this in the next Malcolm Gladwell... <laughs> it was Jay first. By the way, this is—I'm really just kidding. So please don't get mad at the show <laughs> about this. But um, I—but I do think Koreans have some sort of—they just like can kind of do things repetitively. I'm that way, you know. Um, I can just do a task repetitively forever, and I don't—you know—I can zone out, and it's fine. Uh, but I'm not good at any of those things, like archery and whatever golf. anyway um did you guys okay. see the the filipina gold medal winner that was kind of yeah. cool the weight that was that was cool. moving that was cool that was she nice. was the first the first gold yeah. also she yeah. like kind of got exciting like didn't like duterte like basically or the duterte government basically like tag her as like an enemy of the state for a while so she couldn't get any endorsements or anything like that or training money wow not enemy of the state but they like sort of tagged her as suspicious and then um wow. you know she she persevered regardless um which was Dang awesome yeah. I mean, yeah weightlifting is my favorite thing to watch because it's so dramatic like they it's basically just like well can can she lift this to win the gold and it's like well it's so simple I, know. <laughs> you know? I feel like they should get like 15 tries and average them. i know they sometimes average them out but it no, just no 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 like the such, way it is good they should like, just they should just get one try it's like, it makes it breaks so your heart you good. know um anyway um tokyo has uh you know the the backdrop to this they had 2,500 cases basically out of uh, on Tuesday, right? Um, Japan is a big city, 2,500 infections, not that much. But again, we're talking about a country that is uh, not particularly vaccinated. 
and uh, hospitals are beginning to fill up. And I don't know. I imagine that basically what will happen is that they're going to bury the storyline um, until the games are over. And then there's going to be some talk about whether or not this was good or bad. And I think they'll probably come up with no clear answer. Right. Doesn't that sound like how this will go? And maybe there, maybe they will say that like, there's no good answer just because there's actually no good answer to whether or not this had an effect on COVID or not. I thought the number of cases though, from the Olympics itself are quite low. Right. So is, right, is, right, is the complaint right. more that this is just a huge waste of resources at a time when the rest of Tokyo is suffering and the rest of the country is suffering? Yeah, I think so. You right. know, it's like sort of a fit, like why throw this gigantic international right. bonanza when, you know, we have bigger problems right you yeah. know, at home. Yeah. Um, which I think is fair. I mean, yeah. if, uh, if, I don't know, if, if, the Olympics are more popular, I would feel differently, but the Olympics are so unpopular in every country that they're in now that, yeah. you know, it just seems like kind of cut and dry. Um, I don't know. The other, the last thing I'll say is that like, I watched the women's skateboarding and <laughs> oh, cool. uh, it's kind of amazing. I, I was talking to a friend about this. Maybe it was one of you two, but it's like, you know, it's interesting to think that like these women's skateboarders are so young, right? They're like 13, 16, whatever. Wow. And they look so cool and happy, you know, <laughs> like they're like just talking to their friends and they're hugging each other and uh, they, you know, they get to wear cool clothes and, you know, I'm <laughs> sure they're like the coolest people in the Olympic village. And then to sort of contrast that with gymnastics where it's just so, it's just all stress, yeah. you know, and they're sort of like, uh, they're like, their bodies are just so different, you know, mm -hmm. and basically like they're all four foot nine and, you know, they've, they sort of like damage their body for life and just to do it for this one moment where if they screw yeah. up or if like the pressure gets too big for them or if um even like Simone Biles where something happens where she's just like I just don't have it you know this is too yeah. much pressure it's just it it makes you just think that sports like gymnastics it's and and of course with gymnastics all this backstory where everything it's basically every generation has this massive abuse scandal yeah. you yeah. know I don't know not sure about gymnastics. Yeah, it does seem like the kind of the post Nasser gloom is definitely part of the Larry, Larry Nasser, not the Egypt, right. not Egyptian Nasser. Right. right. Um, yes. It's it really should be. I'm not sure if that clarification was necessary. I know. <laughs> that was a nod to our uh, yeah, supply chains analysis. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I'd, it's it's weird I'd, these new would, sports that are like obviously like Gen Z or below, um, whereas you have other sports <laughs> that are like born in the 19th century and have, you know, have all the same sort of abusive hierarchical power structures of a 19th century sport, like and all the sort of animal abuse of like dress dressage is that how you call it? I was it? just gonna say dressage. dressage. Dressage, yeah. It's like yeah, where the horse is like basically breaking its knees every time it steps Ugh. it's so dumb yeah it's so I don't awful know. dressage i don't know. do you think i i guarantee that there is not one person who competes in dressage who's like uh cool, cool. <laughs> dressage famously linked to the impeachment in korea oh yeah yeah that's right right because I mean, the daughter the daughter of the shaman do you think the shaman's the daughter was cool there's no chance yeah. she was cool hell no <laughs> no she was awful <laughs> her friends in berlin were like what the hell so yeah her mom was arguably cooler than her you know <laughs> so are the skateboarders just like normal middle class kids who like 
to skateboard. Well, I don't know. I look. I can't speculate about their class background, but um, <laughs> um, they're they just seem like they have more lives mm-hmm. now. Some of these kids are so young, and some of them have been famous so long. So, like the the Risa, uh, the Brazilian girl who came in second, I think, has been famous since she was seven. You know, because Dude. she went viral wow. on Instagram. Wow. Um, and, so uh, I imagine she does a ton of training. There's this girl, Sky Brown, who is British, uh, British, but she's half Asian. Um, and she's going to be in the park event and she's super famous too. And wow. she is awesome. Like it's un- unbelievable to watch, to watch the that. stuff that they do. Um, and it shows this like weird progression where like, you know, there are 13 year old girls who are better than like you know, dudes were like 25 years ago. And so, you know, That's people are so trying cool. to figure out why uh, that is. And part of it is like, you can learn all the stuff on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And then the other part of it I learned from a friend is that it actually is very helpful to be a tiny person with a low center of gravity. Yeah, doing all this that stuff. makes sense. Um, yeah. But still, it's like, you kind of have to still like kick the board, you know, <laughs> and like, flip. I don't know, it just seems like it takes yeah. a lot of power. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> Like you're like a four foot eight, 13 year old. Like, how are you doing this? But I don't know. The same thing. Sometimes I see kids surfing who are like four foot eight and they're doing stuff that I, I would not say, even dream about. The surfing, so. snowboarding, skateboarding. These are like yeah. the cool sports that look fun. Yeah. And <laughs> also, I don't think it like, like, I think it probably does damage your body, but not like gymnastics. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Anyway, whatever. Ban gymnastics. Cancel gymnastics is our take. Cancel the All Olympics. Right. Cancel gymnastics. <laughs> yeah, cancel everything. <laughs> Speaking of cancel, good segue. Um, we wanted to bring you a fun story. Uh, for, I guess it's fun, which is uh, this is. Did you follow this Oregon porridge story? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I saw it because Andy posted it in the Discord. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so this is another sort of uh, people freaking out about a white woman doing Asian stuff type of thing. <laughs> you know, uh, this one is a white woman. Uh, this is from NBC Asian America, and it says white woman making uh, quote improved kanji apologizes continue sales. This is by Kimmy Yam, who I think. I think is one of the main writers of NBC Asian America. Um, and it says, Breakfast Cure, an Oregon-based company run by a white woman, Karen Taylor. Her name is actually yeah, Karen. I know. <laughs> too much. <laughs> oh, my God. Has apologized uh, after being accused by Asian Americans of culturally appropriating kanji. Um, right? And she says, Taylor, an acupuncturist and self-proclaimed queen of kanji, had written a now edited post titled How I Discovered the Miracle of Kanji and Improved It. (laughs) In the statement, (laughs) Breakfast Cure, found in 2017, referred to its meal packs as, quote, Oregon porridge rather than kanji, um, as it had previously been calling them. So that's her, like, was that her capitulation? Was that she would no longer call it kanji? She called it (laughs) Oregon porridge. That's going to go down in infamy, I feel like. <laughs> oh, my God. This stuff is This is in Eugene, too, right? So it's like another Olympics oh, overlap. Yeah. Oh, it is in Eugene. <laughs> another connection. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Then it goes on. It like, quotes a professor, Heidi Kim, a professor of sociology, Asian, uh, uh, Asian American Kim. studies at oh, Loyola. Nadia, Mer- Kim. Oh, Nadia Kim. I'm sorry. Um, the the type on this is too small. I can't see it. Um, oh, here we go. Kim also pointed out that, quote, Breakfast Cure success comes as Asian-American businesses and restaurants suffered significantly during the pandemic, in part because of anti-Asian racism. And uh, that that she said that the apology and the statement from 
this Karen Taylor was insufficient because Breakfast Cure had bastardized and whitewashed kanji <laughs> and had profited off such behavior. Now, I have a few, like we've talked about a few of these controversies and I think our takes are very clear. But the reason, okay, I have two questions. The first is, this happens in Portland all the time. What is going <laughs> on in Portland, right? Like, I think three of these have happened in Portland um, at this point. What like, are, are there, do you have any Portland specific? That, yes. Wait, what, um, what else happened have, in Portland? Andy, don't question me. Uh, <laughs> don't, like, I, I'm not in the mood to be fact-checked right now. Just trust that many of them happened in Portland. Because the OG of this is Tuk Tuk, right? Mm, the the, the Thai right? place, yeah. Pak Pak? Yeah. Pock Pock, whatever. Pock, the one that they closed. had one in Red Hook or something like yeah, that. Yeah, they did. Right. But it started in Portland and it's yeah. this white guy who. But that know. one never really had this. Was that controversial? I thought people mind. liked it. Yeah. yeah, because he had trained, you know, it was kind of a different, I don't know. Well, this woman had been a connoisseur of kanji for 15 <laughs> years. <or so. laughs> Like, what, what are we doing? Like, does she have to go to like a culinary We're school or something hairs like here. that? Yeah. Are we doing credentialism based <laughs> on didn't... inappropriate Asian yeah. food? Basically. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, I just trust that a lot of them have happened okay, in sure, Oregon. Sure. For the sake of this podcast, Andy, please, we don't need to get, you know, I don't need to send you fucking citations here. All right. So why is it happening in Oregon? Yeah. Interesting. Uh, it's the whitest state on the Pacific Ocean. Right. So they get a lot of Asian stuff, but the number of Asians are fewer than Washington and California. Right. Is that fair? Yeah. I think that's one of that's them. That's a guess. Yeah. 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 And it's, uh, you know, there's like back to nature. So they probably looked like the, to the east for like back to, na- back to nature. <laughs> things. hilarious. Right? Like mystic- yeah, mysticism. Yeah, I was going to say it's really kind of so like the, like... Rex Roth of food. Or like yeah, and it's, of it's food. part of the uh, sort of like eco, like the local, locavore, like natural eating, hippie stuff all tied together. So they right. do a lot of stuff like this. Yeah. You know? um, yeah, I think so. And I, I think, it, first of all, it's very white. Portland is, right? I was just there. And every time I'm in Portland, I'm like, whoa, you know? I mean, you know, whatever. <laughs> I'm not mad about it. But I'm just like, yeah, it's a lot of white people here, you know? And the second part of it, I think it's like something about a specific type of Pacific Northwest liberal, you know, that feels, uh, and this is this has been said before, but like, if you're in a place and you're the, it's all white people, but you feel like you're, you know, liberal who understands other cultures and is not racist, then I do think you take a lot of license and that you think, you know, cause you're not like quote checked. Now that's a theory, but I don't really buy that theory either because it's just like, who, like, what does that mean? You know, like what does being checked mean? You know, if you're like a white person full of like confidence that you can cook Asian food, if you have like seven more Chinese restaurants in your neighborhood, are you not going to do it just because you're like, Oh, their presence checks me. I don't think so, right? Do people really think that way? I think I think it's hard to conceive of this story in like L.A., where Professor Kim lives. You know, where there would be mm. probably Asian-owned kanji shops down there. Because she's also like, I'm introducing this to. She claims to be introducing this to. I think right in in Oregon to a place that doesn't have kanji, or. And she's like, she's talking about how she discovered it. So I assume her customers are also people who are discovering it for the first time. 
<laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. I just yeah. feel like it's the improved part. Like, because the thing is, if you actually look at the way what she was selling, like the Oregon porridge she was selling, it's like really has nothing to do with kanji. Like, it's more like flavored oatmeal. So this she should have just been like, I'm inspired by oatmeal and I'm inspired by kanji. Like, here's what I'm making. But she had to be like, I discovered. Yeah, it's not <laughs> like Asian kanji, at all. You know? It's like, it's not, there was like pineapple in it. Like, it, it kind of sounded nasty, honestly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I think like it's something about, I mean, I think Jay, yeah, like I, I agree that the way you presented it, like maybe that explanation is like mechanistic and, you know, kind of overly deter- overdetermined. But also like I think there is something to that in the sense of the not being checked. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I, I do bit. agree that if there's like 15 kanji shops that she would probably <laughs> yeah. something else. There's like I a also, Chinatown next door. <laughs> I don't really know other places that have 15 kanji. I don't know many places that have kanji, 15 kanji shops. And when Andy was over at my house, I ordered kanji, you know, and Andy told me he didn't Andy like kanji. Andy doesn't like it. Yeah. Andy doesn't like kanji. So I love weird. kanji. I don't get it. But we only have one. We only have one or two kanji places in the entire East Bay. As far as I can I tell. Mean, oh, really? People, yeah, people from down south in the East Bay, please do not you know, message. <laughs> I, I'm sure there's a lot of kanji shops down there, but I just haven't made it because of the pandemic. But am I wrong that you don't need a restaurant? You just put just like just put rice in a bowl of water <laughs> and, and cook it. That's kanji. No, no, yeah. that's like... so right. Ra- that's more racist than Oregon. <laughs> this is seriously so offensive, Andy. You're canceled. <laughs> I stand by my kanji is nothing special. Take it's just rice and water. I don't get it. You never went to Kanji Village in China. I've been to several kanji restaurants. I come away more mystified every time that that's that this insane. is really they are so so delicious. I don't think Kanji Village is particularly good. I actually oh, think I the Kanji it. place in Berkeley is better than Kanji Village, but whatever. That's like neither here nor there. Um, yeah, I I think that that what look first of all, I think that we should say that like uh, all respect to Nadia Kim, but like I I, I just find that these sorts of takes are so overdetermined, right? Like it's just like whitewashing and bastardization of kanji as if there's some sort of original kanji that you have to like pay homage to (laughs) also nadia kim is clearly korean so like you know what are we talking about here you know like you know it's kind of like i don't know are you really gonna get mad it's not i don't know i don't really because chuk is chinese (laughs) so we (laughs) we've inherited all our shit from china too yeah yeah yeah, yeah, in korea like just kanji kanji yeah Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's um yeah. Yeah. that's the Cantonese pronunciation. It's a little, it's a little different. It's yeah, a little, it's the Cantonese pronunciation. Wait, it's a little uh what's it called? It's a little thicker than kanji, I would Thick. say. You think so? Is yeah, it, I think and you just serve it regional with taste. pickles and salty kimchi things or what? Yeah. There are different yeah. regional varieties. Like a really famous one is abalone chuk, tumbok chuk. I had that for breakfast this morning actually. I'm, it's really good. It's like so you get that on like the coast. There's a, a big on the chain then, of yeah. chuk. Yeah, ponjuk, which uh, they it's had delicious. one on Northern Boulevard in Flushing, and they have one like near the BCD Tofu House on Wilshire. In yeah, LA. in LA. And, um, I've been to both. Oh, you've been <laughs> yeah. to all the American ponjuks? <laughs> <laughs> it's good. Oh my God. I mean, you can get different ones. So you can get one with like acorn squash that's a little bit sweeter, right? And then you can get like seafoody ones that are, I prefer. But I like um, the savory. Yeah. Listen, that's my point, though. There's just like many different variations. Like Korean kanji is different than Chinese kanji, I think, you know, yep. and um, I don't know. I, I This sort of appropriation flag stuff, I, I always think it's gone. Like, I feel like people are talking about it less than they were talking about it fi- even five years ago. But it only pops up now in the context of Asian food, right? 
Yeah, and I thought it was just like a funny thing to laugh at. I didn't think it was going to be so serious. I mean, I don't know if it is serious, but it just kind of... Oh, yeah, Mahjong is the other place where it pops up. I don't know. So my question is like, why are Asian people so caught up in this appropriation business when it seems like it's sort of a fad that's... Or it's like a sort of, you know, social justice fad that's passed? That's a good question. Because most of these stories really are, right? Like, it's not, you know, there's like some talk about Bruno Mars and stuff like that. But I think musical artists now kind of know how to give proper credit. Yeah. You know, um, mm-hmm. like, what, what, what's the deal? Why are Asians so into appropriation right now? Well, the food stuff, I think we've, we've talked a little bit about, but just like, it's sort of how important it seems to be in like Asian American cultural formation. And so people getting very exercised about it whenever that's like offended seems to be a thing because it's the one place where maybe we feel like we've achieved a kind of recognition or niche recognition. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I thought it was funny how in the, in the art and Kim Kimmy's article, it was like, this apology isn't good enough. Like, I'm just wondering yeah, what kind yeah, of apology would be sufficient. Like, in this situation. To do, you know, Asians. like shut down her business and like, yeah, like, like, donate all the profits to, Stop AAPI hate as organized by BlackRock. You know, is that what you want? Like, come on. Like, I I don't know. I don't know what that BlackRock did sort of do a stop AAPI hate thing. Like, what, 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 what's, what's the goal here in the end? I mean, my theory on this is that, like, is that there's um, very little else to get mad about in terms of Asian culture (laughs) outside of like these sort of hate crimes and these violence, right? And that I think it just sort of circles back to, what is Asian American culture? And, um, yeah, you know, in the end it just is sort of food. Right. And, um, cause like, do you remember like when, when people are kind of mad at, uh, at, uh, um, Nicki Minaj because she did that Chen Li video oh, and she's yeah. like, yeah, that's absurd. Like they should just be happy that Nicki Minaj, <laughs> who is the most talented person like ever is, is doing, you know, like who, ca- like, I don't understand why people get mad about that, but like, you know, that sort of stuff is uh, like she was like appropriating Street Fighter Two, basically. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. exactly. Um, <laughs> Which is itself know. a Japanese company appropriating Chinese, <laughs> a Chinese character. There's just like this reflexiveness about it that bothers me, right? That it doesn't seem like it's a sincere anger or sincere hurt. It just feels like, hey, you broke this rule, and now a I get to bit. now yeah. I get to get mad in this way and say this sort of stuff about you. You know, and right. I mean, I think I'm not really into that. There is, I think, I mean, it's hard to speculate on like who are the people who are actually mad about this, right? But what's clearly at stake for them is a idea of those sort of authentic original version of Asia that's being violated here, and but that also kind of raises the question: Well, you know, if like if I were to get mad about it, I'm born in the United. I'm born in the U.S. I'm a second generation. Asian American. So if I were to get mad and talk about the preserving the traditional authenticity of kanji, right, it'd be kind of weird coming from me, right? Because like to me, it's I guess it's my it's the food my parents ate, um, but like uh, I did not grow up in Asia eating it, and I don't know what the authentic version is. I know what the kind that was made in this kitchen in Washington State was, you know. So I, I almost wonder if like for some people who are mad about it, there is something else going on in terms of their own sense of loss and sense of their own search for authenticity and so on. But, um, you yeah. know, it's, it's kind of hard to know. Right. It's kind of hard to, uh, that's a very generous interpretation. 
Well, I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm just saying, you know. No, I know. You're you're, you're trying to locate their pain, whereas I'm just like, these people just want to get mad about something. (laughs) But, uh, you know, it's more compassionate. Tammy, what do you think? Do you th- like wh- why do you think people are doing this? Yeah, so so I think it's the centrality of food thing, and then um, so the other the other thing about that I was thinking when you were bringing up the Oregon thing is it's not really like localized, right? Like the the initial tweets that scavenged this weren't necessarily like Oregonians, right? So it's something about the just kind of like ricocheting on Twitter, I think that leads to this kind of like outrage machine. So in other words, like earlier we might've seen pro like we have seen some sites where they're like protests outside of establishments by people who are in that area, but now it just seems to just speed ramp on to the kind of internet, you know, whatever echo chamber thing. So I think like that just like gives rise to the anger. Yeah. Whereas like if you were in, I don't know, Maybe if it if it were remained more localized, there would be like more context and texture to this. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay. This I I, t- I actually I do agree with you there. Here's some more context and here's some more texture um, to the co- to the argument. And this is also from Nadia Kim. By co- and this is by contrast, breakfast cures slow cooked meal packs cost fourteen ninety five <laughs> per pack. And you know, by contrast, meaning kanji is usually cheap and for uh, what uh, for you know I don't know. It's for poor people. Kim said that Taylor's profiting off of kanji, particularly as a white woman, erases the humble nature of this dish. Quote, <laughs> this is this is Nadia Kim now. She essentially she's essentially making a large amount of money or could potentially make a large amount of money based on taking common people's Asian food, Kim said. She's claiming that kanji is not good on its own, and she as a white woman has found a way to make kanji much, much better, meaning it serves a white person a white people's palate. First of all, I guarantee you that Karen Taylor is not making a lot of money on <laughs> on Oregon on Oregon breakfast or whatever porridge. Oregon porridge. Yeah, <laughs> Oregon porridge. There's no way. You know? um, and secondly, like, look, fourteen ninety five is kind of a lot for Kanji. I certainly would not pay that, but that's probably why she's not making a lot of money. Like, who's going to pay this? You know. Um, but I don't know this this idea. Like, what what do you think about uh, Nadia Kim's class class interpretations here? <laughs> I think actually at the end, the end of the article, there's another quote that I think is also uh, reinforces that. This is from another professor. I forget the first name, named Rai or Ray, that says the sharp backlash is a symptom of strengthening of subordinate groups. I do think it is also about greater strengthening and confidence among Asian American, mm. I don't know, mm-hmm. middle class or uh, media class to, to, to call this stuff out publicly instead of privately. Mm-hmm. Um because this stuff has been going on, f- yeah. this, stuff, this stuff happened a long time ago, and there were there weren't like prominent. If there wasn't NBC Asian America as a website, you know, then where would this like where who would be talking about this? Yeah, yeah. Tammy, what what, what did you think about the class dynamics? <laughs> I mean, I think it's a little bit silly in the sense that obviously there are different kinds of like high end kanji and chuk being sold too, so right. it's not like. It's just like a Chinese villager, you know, who's like (laughs) making his last rice kernel, like into, (laughs) you know, so there's a little bit of this kind of like nostalgic freezing that, that Andy was talking about. Also, it's just weird to say that like poor people should just eat poor people food and rich people should not eat poor people food and that like, you know, we should actually essentialize all class distinctions as much as possible (laughs) and keep, and keep them frozen in time, you know, and that, you know, the 
poor people should just eat like uh, watery rice, as Andy put it. <laughs> I mean, what is the uh, what? How else would you describe what kanji is? Watery rice? No, you're. It's true. It's watery rice <laughs> with stuff in it. <laughs> and it is what our parents ate when they were. Hungry. I would just eat rice if I want rice. I don't. I don't understand why you would add a lot of this water to it. But you don't eat it when you're sick, like. No, Koreans I don't need it when I'm sick. When they're sick. Uh, I also don't believe in the I don't believe in the healing properties of yeah. just water and rice. <laughs> you know, does well, both of you guys are wrong, Dad. Does the water <laughs> does the water release some sort of like mystic chemical that helps you feel feel fit? It, it's called chi. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I don't know. The last thing I'll say about this is that there's a way that like white woman has become a slur that I feel like it's kind of like uncomfortable about, you know, like, I mean, obviously Karen is a stand in for it, but I don't know, like, what, like maybe th- I feel very like old school about this, but like, um, and I don't mean to like excuse like white, you know, white feminism or anything like that, but mm-hmm. like, I don't know, like the, the way that it's written and or said in this sort of, in these sorts of contexts is it, it upsets me a little bit. You know, um, like, like, what are we doing? You know, like we're, we're like, it's basically assigning a type of entitlement and act action to like white women, um, and essentializing it in a way that I think is bad, yeah. you know, but, um, um, I don't know. I Cause mean, they're, they're easy targets, but you know, if people start talking this way and projecting onto all groups, we would obviously complain about it that way. So they're, right, they're just too much of an right. easy target and it's not, it's yeah. not consistent, I guess. With being respectful. And her name is Karen. And her name is Karen, though. I mean, that's great. <laughs> Just say this Karen, particularly as a Karen. Yeah, I don't even think we need to do the part where we do like, a, what does this all mean? And what should, you know, what should Asian Americans I actually think it's like, who cares? Like, this story is so silly. I think the original it's post funny. was actually old, too. It wasn't even a new thing. Someone just dug this up and then it started, um, you know, getting going viral Yeah, a little bit. But it wasn't like, Karen made a huge announcement. Oh, really? I don't think so. Oh, okay, because yeah. this article is from like four days ago. The article the is. Series. Yeah, oh, okay. but the, yeah, it's Twitter. But the initial outrage. Its Twitter moment trigger. was long after, I think, the time it was um, announced on Facebook or whatever. It was just, I think it was yeah. just supposed to be a fun post. And then I guess people took it seriously. What What do you think the funniest part of, uh, what do you think the funniest version of what, of like a white person appropriating Asian <laughs> culture would be? I was trying to think about this. It'd be like that, you know, like those dudes who play the one string violin in the subway, you know, <laughs> or who, yeah, two string. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like a like a white woman, Karen, has taken the one string oh violin God. and added another string to, <laughs> string to it. Just like this is much better. I now have two strings. <laughs> she like cuts a CD, you know. And, oh my God, that would be that would be funny. I would laugh. I would probably buy the CD. Just <laughs> bit as like part of my mementos. Like that would be very funny. All right. Um, <laughs> transitioning to the class warfare. Um, we wanted to bring back our movie, uh, our movie club. Right. And so Yay. we talked about it while we were all together and what, what we should watch. And we had a lot of suggestions and Tammy of course came up with, let's watch the young Karl Marx. <laughs> right. And I was like, okay, sure. It's directed by Raul Peck. <laughs> Raul Peck is, I, I, I do like Raul, you know, I think everyone likes Raul Peck. I mean, he's somebody who's sort of universally beloved yeah. and, um, has that new documentary out or series of documentaries. Uh, what's it called? Like we will exterminate s- all the yeah. Brits. Exterminate all the Brits. Oh, Tammy, have you seen it? I, I haven't seen it. seen it, but the people yeah. I've talked to have seen it have raved about it. And these are it's people whose really opinion I trust. 
Yeah. Is it good? It's quite well done. Yeah. Okay. It's just really personal and challenging and it's cr- a kind of creative pastiche like in style. So it's really interesting. But, um, it's based know. on a book, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, he was friends with the guy, this guy Sven, can't remember his last name, who wrote a book on New Press. But it's the original phrase, yeah, obviously gesturing also to Conrad. Hmm. Um, this film is originally from 2017. It's four years old. And um, I don't know. I I actually totally missed it coming out. Did you guys did you guys watch it earlier? Um, I don't think I had the chance to see it in the theaters, but I and then I just saw it on I just streamed it. Like you know, within a year of it coming out, um, I mean, people. So you've seen it twice now. Yeah, I mean, academics, of course, knew about it. And we're talking about it, but uh, yeah. it wasn't really widely released, as far as I recall. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the chatter in Mark's land? Um, you know, I think I mean, you know, from a brief survey of my friends, everyone generally likes the movie. They think it, they that Rawl did a good job with it, or Mr. Peck did a good job with it. Um, Mr. Peck. Uh, Did you call him Mr. Peck? Yeah, I mean, we can get into like the substance of it, but in general, like it's obviously sympathetic um, and it's not, you know, there's actually a couple of Marx biographies that came out over the last few years and people are always complaining that it was written by a liberal, <laughs> meaning like they'd be like, well, Marx was an interesting mm-hmm. guy, but in the end, communism never works. You know, like th- th- that's kind of the tone of those uh, biographies. And I think Peck's is like much more, obviously it's more open-ended because this is only about the first half um, yeah. of Marx's life. Uh, you know the first the the first phase um so yeah should we give a brief summary of it yeah i mean well, it's about mark's life from what age 25 to 30 right uh 1842 to 1849 roughly um ending with the communist manifesto which i'm pretty sure if anyone listener has ever read marx in a college class it's probably the communist manifesto it's mm-hmm. the most yeah. by far the most it's, famous thing spoiler alert he writes a <laughs> manifesto yeah. with a friend, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. with his buddy. Yeah. And, it's um, kind of a buddy movie, bro. bro movie, it is yeah. a buddy movie. Well, okay. So, what what do we think about this? Uh, let, we can talk about sort of the brass tacks of it and uh, outside of it. What do you think about it as a movie, Tammy? Mm-hmm. So it's it's a fairly kind of standard, conventionally made biopic, I would say. Like there isn't a lot of kind of gloss, and you know. But I think what's interesting about it is like it it does the buddy pick, it does the buddy you know film sort of thing, but then it also does a good job, I think, of bringing in some of the side characters. And in this case, it's a bit of a feminist kind of recuperation. Right. Of this I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, the buddies, so by I the way, are Marks and Angles. Yes, right. Marks and Angles, right. the buddies. Um, and basically they're, you know, in, in the case of Marx's wife and in the case of Angles, his life partner, Mary Burns, you know, are brought in as like fully flesh characters. And I think Peck does a good job of trying to highlight their labor in supporting the production of these works. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Cinema- cinematically, what do you guys think about the movie as a movie? I mean, I thought it was visually very interesting. I mean, I, the whole time I was thinking, though, like, you know, I'm biased because like I, I spend a lot of my time reading and thinking about this guy. So I was interested, but I almost wonder, like, how can you make writing? Like, that's literally what they do. They write and read books, yeah. right? How do you make that interesting for two hours to it's someone true. who isn't already interested? Um, and I don't know if that was his goal. I think he just wanted to make the movie, you know, for the sake of it, um, as a sort of passion project. Um, yeah, I'm curious, like, did you all think it was compelling or was it just like, here's a lot of scenes of people talking and, you know, <laughs> Jay, what do you like, think? I thought it was a lot of scenes of people talking. You know? <laughs> I'm not, I'm not saying that the movie was bad, but you know, I have very specific tastes in 
Now, I would not even say their taste, you know, but I just have an extremely short attention span. And um, I, I did find myself moved at times about, you know, when it seemed to be that they were really hitting on ideas. And I do think in terms of creation myth story, which is basically what this is, right? Yeah. Like it's uh, how did this thing come not creation mystery is creation story in the same way. Like how did Spider-Man come about? Right. Like this one is like, how did Karl Marx? <laughs> the and, origin. Uh, yeah. It's an origin story. I think in that way it was effective. Right. Like, and I actually think that in terms of the subtlety with which it brought in these different influences in their life. Right. Um, that this wasn't just a genius basically producing, right. Like in the way that Amadeus was right. Amadeus, right. It's yeah. another biopic, which you know I think is good biopic, but it's basically yeah. just Amadeus. By the time he comes to court in Prussia, is it Prussia or is it Austria? I think it's Austria in, in Vienna, um, and meets Salieri. Uh, Amadeus is already fully formed, right? Like he and the explanation that Salieri gives is that uh, this is he has a gift from God, which is what makes yeah. Salieri mad because like he's like a chaste, uh, you know, religious man and and. Mozart is is just this like sort of like horny buffoon that makes him angry right but <laughs> but this is not quite that this is not Moses coming down from the mount with the tablets right? yeah and these are the tablets mm-hmm. right and I thought that part was done very well yeah yeah and um they did sort of in a two-hour movie effectively show the labor conditions for people yeah. at that time and that was something I think we should just talk about which is you know um we're talking about conditions now like yeah uh how do you make connections between like stuff that happens in Amazon warehouses and connect them to, you know, like the stories that are going around in this movie, which is like, you know, people working 14 hours at a loom. Is that right? Yeah. And then, yeah. like, the fingers get cut off and they're just like, sorry, yeah, uh, we're going to cut you. Totally. Like, do you think those types of, do you think those types of comparisons work? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that's why, the movie, you know, and a lot of the press surrounding the movie was, oh, now, like, this isn't just this anachronistic film about life 200 years ago. This is actually quite resonant with the specific moment of, I think, you know, post-2008 mm-hmm. where people are putting capitalism or economics um, from a left-wing perspective back on the table uh, as something to talk about. So I think there was an intentional move there, too. Um, I mean, I actually kind of thought they didn't do too much. Um, and maybe that's to their credit. They didn't do too much sort of, like, voyeuristic footage of laboring conditions you just got a kind of a sense of you know the 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 factory where mary burns is working or the angles loom the angles power loom <laughs> yeah, uh, 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 cotton mill <laughs> right um you get a sense of how big it was and how much it was like an army much in the way that you know an amazon warehouse is like an army today or a sweatshop in asia uh can look like an army or the sort of huge configuration um i think that's that's definitely there, but and also just the kind of um, as far as this creation story point you made, Jay. I think by the end of the movie, I was thinking, you know, what the, what is this movie? It's a movie of two two guys, you know, you know, and they're women, but basically two men arguing with other leftists for two hours, right? And that's right. kind of a weird thing to make a movie about. But I do think, as you were saying, Jay, it, I think it should drive home the point that you know people tend to conflate Marxism with socialism with the left as if this was all invented overnight. But in fact, Marx and Engels were actually intervening into something that was already going on. Um, And they really did not get along with a lot of the other people who would... Like Proudhon. Proudhon, right, and Weitling and these other characters. Um, And I think that 
a lot of their disagreements are very similar to the I think the the thing that's most resonant with the 21st century is actually the types of disagreements they're having mm. um, mm-hmm. because as we know right the left fights itself all the time and a lot of these arguments they're having is in a way kind of similar to a lot of debates that still happen on like the online left or the academic left well, and with so the on. big difference being now the conversation has an element of uh, that race has become the central disagreement point right uh, I don't know if that gets raised directly in this film, but I actually kind of... That, no, no, not in this oh, film. Right, I'm right, saying right. That, that that's sort of the difference yeah. in the debates today. I think so, just in the sense that the big thing that they're trying to foreground is Marx and Engels are in disagreement with the left, what they call either the young Hegelians or Proudhon or these other characters who have all been kind of lost to history, right? Except for to the extent they're in Marx's writings. Because he feel, they're, they're politically left, but they don't... They're basically stuck in this world where it's all about beliefs and ideas. Right. And for Marx, beliefs and ideas, um, I don't want to say they're like, it's a one-way street where they're like over de- only determined by material conditions, but uh, ideas like freedom, equality, and so on are only possible under certain material conditions and so on. And so for Proudhon, who's a utopian anarchist, to say, let's replace property with equality and freedom, that seems yeah. to Marx like it's gibberish because... He doesn't take into consideration like, well, what what is the material conditions under which these ideas take place and so on. So mm-hmm. and I kind of think that actually is similar to a lot of these debates about like, um, you know, a lot of these race class debates are like racism is kind of seen as a metaphysical thing that's just in people's heads. Um, and the rejoinder isn't that racism isn't real, but that racism also arises under specific material conditions. And it's not just this natural yeah. natural condition right. of humankind um so I'm, I'm, i know i'm kind of rambling but those are some of the some of the takeaways uh, in terms of the, i didn't think you were rambling. yeah I think that's yeah no point. that was good yeah. i mean i don't yeah. uh i mean it's tammy go ahead oh i was just gonna say i think but a thing i liked about this film also is that it, it basically you know it, it talks about angles ethnography of the english working class and how he was very fixated on specific conditions doing in deep interviews with workers, you know, and I think that's so important also to, as we are always talking about, yeah, again, like theory, like how do we want to live? Well, we also want to know what it is to live, you know, as workers in a specific time and place. Um, and, and I think like, you know, seeing, yeah, the images are kind of funny of like, how do people just like write this manifesto, but also their intention of wanting to do something that was like intellectually rigorous, but also useful to a mass of people. Yeah you know, who they cared about, I think is like very touching and challenging for intellect, like right. young intellectuals or should be. Um, another thing I really liked about the film is that it has like a really international and internationalist right. element. So they're thinking about, you know, and the movie is really brilliantly done, I think in a mishmash of French and German, primarily in English, yeah. but thinking about Europe, thinking about Russia, thinking about all of these places as case studies and, and places where specific, like, again, working conditions exist, political conditions exist, but also that they're interconnected and that they can learn from each other. And that, you know, they, their angles is like, I thought it was kind of funny how angles like basically gives Marx like a reading list mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's like, oh, you've read these guys. Great. But you also need to read these guys, yeah. you know? And I think right. I really, I really love that. I, I love like the fact that, you know, it's again, I think a challenge to people like us to be like, yeah. you know, are you, are you drawing on all of these intellectual influences? Cause they have something to say about your, situation yeah. and the closing credits definitely hammer that home right the <laughs> film ends and then they start playing uh like a rolling I stone I, which I wasn't know, a big like, fan of right. that choice and then Checking. and then they show like sort yeah. of this uh montage of images which include like nelson mandela 
um, you know, napalm being dropped in, <laughs> in Vietnam, uh, JFK, Ronald Reagan. Um, you know, I wouldn't describe uh, Peck as a subtle filmmaker <laughs> right, in any right, of his right. movies. <laughs> he was just like, and then it, it Che Guevara is in there a couple of times and it's like, all right, well, this changed the world and, you know, created the, the conditions for what, like constant revolution or something like that. Right? Like, like that's, that was sort of his argument, yeah. I think, at the end, which I was just like, okay, like, yeah. you know, and, and also Bob Dylan. Right, right. It's pretty heavy-handed. <laughs> kind of love it, though. Yeah, like, if you had to pay to license that song. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Um, or Bob Dylan was like, no, Raul, you know, this one's on, this one's right, on me. This one's on me. <laughs> this one's on me, brother. Um, I, I do think, I, I didn't know too much about Raul Peck um, before I watched it. I looked it up, and I, there is something interesting about, we should obviously talk about how he's, you know, he's a black Haitian international filmmaker, and he makes a film about two white guys that are often identified as just two dead white men who have nothing to say, you know, about right. the present. But it's also, you know, what's interesting about Raoul is that he is, you know, he grows up in French speaking Haiti and Congo, studies in Berlin and lives in New York. So in terms of this, this triangulation, he, he lived through the same triangulation that Marx did. Exactly. Right. And, yeah. and right. people would say Marx is a combination of German philosophy, French socialism, English economics. And, um, it's it takes quite the i don't know i mean I, i'm sure any filmmaker probably could have just hired actors who speak all these languages but i almost get the feeling that peck was in, extra sensitive to this because he actually does know all these languages and so. wants yeah. some degree of accuracy um it is mind-boggling how they're just switching languages it's yeah constantly. it makes it very cool i think I actually it. and it does as to tammy's point it does make it feel more international than if they were all just speaking in a british accent the whole time <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> In, uh, like in Game of Thrones, right? Yeah. The, the default like, accent is like this British accent. Um, even I haven't seen it. it makes no yeah, sense. even Peter Dinklage um, from New Jersey speaks in a British accent. Right, right. And it's just like, well, I don't know. Aren't these orcs? Or, I guess not orcs, and not not in not in Game of Thrones. The, the, I mean, the other so. thing is, a lot of times I found the dialogue a little bit just like corny because like they're just saying you know the famous famous lines but the cool thing that they did was the you know the Marx and Engels their correspondence has been published in these massive volumes and I think they actually directly they studied them and they directly took these lines out of their correspondence and I think you know there are scenes where Jenny Marx is talking to Engels in French and I'm like why are they speaking French they're German but actually I bet I'm guessing they actually found letters written in French to each other and you know so they're trying to be accurate and say like these are you know, completely trilingual right, people right. who are yeah. actually might be more comfortable in French because French was like the lingua franca of the of the rich, you know, throughout Europe at the time. Mm -hmm. So they were like to be witty if you use French and not German and, and that kind of And I think they yeah, they were constantly reading also in translation different texts in different languages. So, you know, I think there are also moments like where Jenny is editing and assisting right. Marx, you know, and as Marx's daughter would later do to Eleanor Marx. Um and, and the, I imagine a lot of the philosophy and, you know, other things they were reading were in French. Yeah. So the, the, the film to me was basically just like a, it was like a ode to the possibility of intellectual life, right? Like that's what it is at its core. It's, yeah. Uh, and can you, can you do a critique of a critique of a critique and have it change the world? Which is basically what the, what, what Mark says at some point in this film, right? Yeah. Like, this is the critique of the critique of the critique or something like that. And they all start laughing. Right. Um, and I think that Raoul Peck absolutely believes that that's possible, right? That people thinking and people coming up with, you know, a full criticism of capitalism can change 
the world, um, which I don't think is debatable, no matter how you feel about communism. Right. right? But um, and it seemed like he was also saying towards the end that like this can still happen, you know, like this is still part of human possibility. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel that the conditions right now, like, do you think we're close to it? I mean, I don't know if that's a good question, but do you feel like the conversations, Andy, that you have on the left, you know, with other scholars, like, do you think you're getting somewhere on all of this or is it just sort of rehashing of what these dudes did? Uh, I think they were obviously much closer to it back then. There was a real sense of this, there's this new stuff that made a lot of people unhappy back then and m- miserable. And so the, and the context again is it ends with them writing the communist manifesto. And then you have these revolutions all throughout Europe in 48 and 49. Yeah. And right. they thought, oh shit, it's coming. You know, like oh, we yeah. got to get ready and write yeah. the manifesto right now. And that's why it's called Young Marx because for Marxologists, for people who study this stuff, they know that there's kind of a split between Marx up until the manifesto and then Marx after the manifesto is the kind of the moment of, it's the morning after where the revolution didn't succeed. And he has to spend mm-hmm. the rest of his life trying to figure out why it didn't. And that's when he writes Capital and he studies economics, which is boring and dry, but he feels like to actually understand how this stuff works and why the revolution failed, you have to understand capitalism as this economic mm-hmm. system. So that's kind of like the, what's the postscript that doesn't uh, isn't included in the film. I think the goal of the film is just to show that Marx once was once Marx and Engels were both young. They weren't just those old dudes with huge beards yeah. that you see right. um, on whatever, all, all, all the covers of books. They once were like 20, 30 year old bros, you know, getting drunk and, and talking about right. this stuff in a way that, <laughs> you know, a lot of us, yeah. could relate to <laughs> yeah yeah i don't know i guess i just thought that like this i just keep thinking about what's going to happen in the next five years and you know it seems like some sort of state of emergency is going to be perpetual right and that people's lives are already sort of irreparably changed both by climate stuff not not as intensely here in the united states i would say although you know obviously there are intense examples of that but you know by the pandemic by 2008 and then by whatever crashes may be coming you know i don't know like you know maybe they can print enough money to avert it but uh i don't know it'll be the thing i kept thinking about while watching this movie was just like okay well you know like what has a chance of really succeeding is becoming some sort of, you know, germ, intellectual germ that can spread. And it's probably just the same thing, right? Yeah. I don't think that there's too much update on it. (laughs) I think, I mean, I think the climate change question really changes it. Right. Um, Because that is global. Yeah. And that that gets, that has people's attention, I think. But I mean, so there's a basic core thing that's still constant from the 19th century, which is, you know, wage labor itself being this horrible oppressive system that produces wealth for others and so on. Uh, that basic exploitation part is still there, but it's like, it was so extreme and it was also so novel in the 19th century. There was this mm-hmm. sense of urgency that it could be changed overnight. I think that sense that it could ever be changed is kind of gone, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. I, agree. Yeah. I mean, now I guess in 2021, people are more critical of capitalism than in 2007, I guess, but we're still such a far way away, I think, from the world of Marx. Um, uh, and again, for them, they're thinking about like, I don't know, like five countries in Western Europe, you know, at yeah. the time. That's what they think capitalism is. They And they think totally. like Asia and the Americas are not quite there yet at the time. Now we are, we're dealing with the entire world. Yeah. And it's hard to kind of 
imagine something happening that could that could be coordinated or connected around the whole world. Um, I think also right now we, you know, we have to contend with the pacification that occurs through the through welfare states, because always you see these cycles of uprising and then mollification through some sort of brief welfare program. And then we go again. Right. So I think um, I like in watching this again, I was thinking about um, like Francis Fox Piven and Daniel Cloward and their work on, and just thinking about, riots and then pushing down riots until it's just angry enough, but not quote so angry, you know, through a program and then, and, and how we're maybe in that right now with Biden, you know, we're in a very dramatic period of potentially welfare state expansion, but what that means for our anger, for the anger of people who are exploited, for people who are unhoused to me is, you know, it's a bit, I feel a bit anxious about it. You know, I'm both like supportive of a lot of stuff that's being pushed through, but also, yeah, are we gonna, then going to just continuously distance ourselves from some of the more left programs that we've been imagining over the past few years? I, I think a sense of crisis might come, um, but in California specifically, and I think it'll be around housing. You know, yeah. I think it will think be basically that thing. nobody, including the middle class, will have any way to afford any sort of decent home for themselves. Yeah. And I do think that the homeless crisis in the cities, you know, Bay Area, and Los Angeles is going to basically be so present in people's minds front and center that it might create conditions for something, you know, now what that is, is interesting because, uh, you know, like we obviously tenants rights, uh, organizations and a lot of people on the left are arguing that, you know, we shouldn't build any, not everyone, but some people argue stuff like, uh, you know, like we just need public housing, right. Right. And we won't accept anything Mm -hmm. except public housing and, some sort of uh idea and everyone else is like well you have to do affordable housing you, you know which is in some ways a racket right or in some yeah. places is I think we can um and uh or like you just have to build 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 and economics 101 will take care of the rest of it and i don't know it's an interesting moment because i don't see it being resolved in any sort of way i mean the idea that mm-hmm. they're going to build a ton of public housing is like total pipe dream you know and yeah. so it does show that people's in a moment of intense crisis where everyone agrees that something has to be done, mm-hmm. that people's political imaginations are pretty limited, right? And it's actually hard to blame them for having limited political imagination because like the idea that you could like fight the real estate industry and all of its political power is actually impossible to imagine. Yeah. yeah. You know? um, so that's oppressive. <laughs> yeah. And then more and more people are just going to be um, unhoused throughout the next three years. And then it'll be super interesting to see what happens. I mean, um, anyone who lives in Los Angeles or the Bay Area right now certainly understands how much of a crisis point it is. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. um, you can't yeah. drive anywhere, you know, without having it in your face. But, um, you know, solution, there's a lot of money going to solutions and not many solutions being produced. Yeah. yeah I mean, I think the one, the the sort of intervention, Marxist intervention to economics, even till today is that un- unlike mainstream economics, they... Marxist, the Marxist approaches are uh, attentive to crises and this, you know, what they call contradictions. And mm-hmm. um, it was supposed to be those contradictions and crises that would naturally kind of produce revolution. I yeah. think by the end of Marx's life, that the the not young Marx 
was a little bit less <laughs> optimistic about that one crisis that's going to flip everything over. Yeah. I think what we've seen. Let's say, say more about that. Why? Why was he, or did he just? It was it just a drift in his. If thinking? you, I mean, if you read Capital, he doesn't talk about communism. He's just talking about how economics works, and then there are. He does point out there are these contradictions, but. Um, you know, like, I, you know, everyone is probably familiar with like Hegel 101, that the way this is supposed to work is not that the stuff changes overnight, but that it gets dialectically worked through, right, into new stages right. and new processes mm-hmm. and so on. And I kind of think that's probably the most, I mean, socialism isn't supposed to be the negation of capitalism, or not just like the opposite of capitalism. It's supposed to be capitalism working through its contradictions into something better, yeah. bigger and better um, than right. capitalism itself. And yeah, I think... It's true that the horizon of what we think is possible is basically a more humane welfare version of capitalism at this point, and that would honestly yeah. be a huge welcome over what we have in most parts of the world. And it is hard to imagine that there's going to be the one crisis that's going to overturn all of this. It's more likely you'll have small crises that get resolved and worked out, probably at a huge, you know, great human cost here and there. But um, you know, maybe climate change is. I don't know if climate change is, I mean, climate change is certainly like a, a new challenge, a different challenge than an economic crisis, but um, I don't know. I think it's scale. I think it's scale and it's totalizing influence on all aspects of human life is certainly unprecedented. Yeah. But yeah, I mean. Um, but it'll only, I don't know. I, I feel like it'll only really matter to the extent it threatens like the rich, you know, because we've we've seen for a while how climate yeah. is already destroying the lives of the poor um, and the developing countries and so on. So um, I think, I mean, yeah, uh, in that sense, it's localized, Yeah, you know, and it's sort of, yeah, episodic. I I think, I think, I don't know. I think it does affect the lives of the rich in some ways. Oh, it will. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. I think even more, I think it'll be a tipping point when it does affect the rich more and more. Right. Right. Um, Right. Like here we have, this is the wealthiest area in the United States, I think. Right. Like it must be the Bay area. Um, And let me tell you the every year of fire season right now is, is like, are... you know, it's, it, it is really making the rich mad. <laughs> <laughs> but what they're um, willing to do about it is the question. Right. Right. And they don't, they do not want to move to Idaho, you know, although Idaho might burn. Um, right. They definitely don't want to move to like Detroit, you know, um, and just say, well, here's the, here's a nice cool place you know, for the incoming mm-hmm. climate disaster. Uh, so I do think it has some effect, but you're right. It hasn't reached this crisis point yet. Um, but every year brings a new crisis point that people feel very strongly about when they see it. You yeah. know, I was just in Portland, like I said, and the way people are talking about that heat wave was, you know, they were talking about it like this is a crisis. Yeah, you know, like we're, And these Absolutely. are not like, I was not hanging out with like, you know, Greenpeace, former Greenpeace people. Right. You know, like these are, yeah. these are like normal upper middle class people who were basically just like, uh, I don't know, like if this happens again, then, you know, I don't know what's happening to the world. So yeah. I think the sense of crisis is there, but I think that, you know, people are figuring out solutions, but the way in which it interacts with, you know, the powers that be is a little depressing. Like it just seems like people's imagination is there and that the, you know, the, I, the belief that the imagination could work. Yeah. In something as simple as like, why don't we just like uh, build public housing? Like, if that's impossible, then everything's impossible. That's sort of like my sense of it. Hmm. Like when everyone agrees that there's a problem, yeah, right, and then they can't do the simple thing, then um, I don't know. Like, what are we talking about then? Yeah. Um, 
that is not to like deflate the people who are coming up with tons of very creative solutions, right? But those creative solutions are necessitated because the simple solution is not possible, I guess is my only Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Anything else about this movie? I thought it was pretty, I don't know. I, I, I told you guys <laughs> that I thought that I was kind of like, I found myself a bit stultified at times, but I did think that it was, uh, I did think it was a good movie. And I, I don't know, Raul Peck, I, I feel bad saying anything bad about him because I admire him. Well, I think it. it might be worth talking about the fact that, again, Raul Peck is, well, who is he and like, why did he make this film? You know, he, the other film he was known for at the time was the James Baldwin film, you know, so his two, am I wrong? Like, well, that right. came out after. Oh, okay. That came out after. Okay. But Lumumba, if you guys have seen that, that's a really great film from 2001 that he made. So he's very interested in revolutionary right. culture. And, but, you know, you would, yeah. you would assume like, you know, he's he's a black director whose topic whose topics are typically like black figures, right? Um, and he makes a film about two white guys and he doesn't back down. He's unapologetic about it in interviews. He says like... You know, this is this like Marxism as he studied in the 60s and 70s was like this deeply personal thing that he had to work through. Um, and, uh, you know, you would, you would, there is this, you know, I've heard the idea from other academics, like, why would we study Marx? It's just another old white guy who, gets, who should be canceled, you know? Um, and do people really, really? say that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, who said that? I, I can't say. <laughs> I can't say. Um, <laughs> But uh, no, but I think that, but I think, I think even that, even if they don't say it that way, I think that mood is out there, you know, that there is a sort of hesitation because they feel like it's all very old fashioned. It's too Eurocentric. It is Eurocentric. Right. But I think there's something interesting about how he as a non-white person reads this history as his part of his history. Um, yeah. And as someone pointed out, I didn't even realize this in the film. There are scenes like in, in France at the Proudhon meeting where there are black characters in the audience um, which is something he might have, you know, That's right. yeah. Peck might be more extra sensitive to because he grew up in a French colony, a black French right. colony, um, and then in, in the Congo later. So there were black people yeah. in France in the 19th century because it was a slave society, it was a slave empire. Um, so I think there are ways that it's also just instructive, I guess, of um, being able to think about how this stuff transcends those categories without actually, but, but obviously he doesn't give up on race and racism as an important question. Um, he just thinks mm-hmm. that capitalism and racism and all these things, like they're not mutually exclusive for him yeah. in right. a way that he has a capacious, he has a capacious mind, yeah. right. And he sensibility does. about these yeah. things. And that's always to be applauded. And, you know, it would be hard to see him getting mad about Oregon porridge. If he was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's certainly not a racialist. If that, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, and sorry, just a correction, Andy. Sorry, you were right that I am not your Negro came out the year before right. Young Carl. Yeah. Sorry about that. But I it's like, you know, I, I, mix them up. I assume the people who watch I Am Not Your Negro um, were interested in it because they're interested in James Baldwin, which I think is like a very, you know, he's he's also an interesting like materialist thinker in the U.S. Right. context, but he's mm-hmm. probably seen as a race writer, right, as opposed to like a writer about capitalism, um, even though I think you can read Baldwin that way. Uh, Definitely. Right. Um, I think, write, and, I think you should write. I think you should read Baldwin that yeah. way, or else it's like very limited, yeah. right? I mean, did you read that uh, profile of Adolf Reed where he was saying like, "All we have now is James Baldwin imitators writing letters to their nephews," and he's like, "I have four nephews, and I could so I got four books." Oh right my there. gosh! <laughs> right, like there is a way that Baldwin has been reduced that I think is uh, yeah. unfortunate in some ways, um, and that mm-hmm. he has become sort of the um, let me tell you about racism guy right which he 
which I think he was in a lot of ways, but I don't know. You read, um, uh, if you read like Notes of a Native Son, right? Um, you know, like I don't think that 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 is sort of his project, right? His project is to sort of talk about poverty and right. poor mm-hmm. people and the police, yeah. right? Um, in that, um, I don't know. Notes of a Native Son probably the best. You know, I think I've said this on the podcast. Notes of a Native Son probably the best essay that has been written in America. I don't know if that's a category. Period. Oh yeah, it's incredible. I mean, it's like the best written thing. I, I it's like I stunning. How well, it is stunning. But... Uh, how 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 well written it is, and I I, I do find it odd that when people sort of sort of talk about Baldwin in a cursory way, they talk about fire next time, which I actually think is much less interesting than Notes of a Native Son. Although you know, fire next time is also great. It's like a um, yeah. The entry point, though, I feel like for most people, you it's know, fire next time. Yeah, because it's short, and so it's a good primer to get to. Notes of Native Son is like nine pages long, though the essay, you know. Um, I don't know. Is it that short? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's short. It's just about his dad and um, going to his dad's funeral and the mm. and you know riot. Uh, I don't know. Um, okay. On that note, yeah. uh, I have to go back to the thing I was doing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you for listening to the show. Uh, we do this every week. Sometimes we do it twice a week. If you would like to support our show, um, and we will have some changes on this coming up, I believe, uh, to make it easier to support the show and to get rid of some of the uh, confusions, um, you can sign up at Substack at goodbye.substack.com. There's an uh, option to subscribe for $5 a month, or you can join us at Patreon. Both options allow you to join our Discord server where Tammy, Andy, and I talk with hundreds of people um i don't know it's like 600 700 people at this point um that's where we organize things like our meetups and i don't know there's a lot of always interesting conversations like if you want to get really deep into uh capital and you can do that that happened uh if you want to talk about the olympics you can do that as well that happened there's a lot of lively conversations about food and korean dramas and whatever you know i feel like we have so many different rooms now i can't even keep track of them um if you want to get in touch with us through email, it's time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com. And if you want to reach us on Twitter, it's at ETSG pod. Amy and Andy, thank you as always for your time. Um, thank you. Uh, and uh, I apologize again that this is a little late.